0: Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. Hello and welcome to the 14th recording in our regular series of Meet the Education Researcher podcasts. My name is Neil Selwyn and I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia so the aim of these recordings is really simple. We're gonna spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by a guest from the US, Sonia Horsford, who's an associate professor of education leadership. and She works out of Teachers College, Columbia University in New York City. So good afternoon, Sonia. Good afternoon. So you're a researcher whose work focuses on the history and the politics of race and inequality and leadership in US education. So I mean, beneath those headline labels, what are the central issues and concerns that you're actually addressing?
1: Well, I'm primarily interested in the history of race in America and its implications for schools. Um, I find that we spend a lot of time trying to fix or address issues of educational inequality, um, but we do it with um, an insufficient attention to issues of race um, and how that really impacts um, the perceptions that teachers have of students, that um, educators may have of the communities that they're working in, um, as well as um, the expectations that we have for students based on their racial identity.
0: So I guess from an outside US perspective, it's very odd to hear someone said we don't pay enough attention to race because we see us education researchers are just always focused on Mm. race i mean is that that's really an issue yeah
1: i think we do we talk about it all the time um (laughs) and so it's very difficult even to find research that doesn't in some way talk about race but not really its origins um and not how it impacts the everyday lives of uh, students and teachers and um, the school communities Mm. and so i'm really interested in in how we view race as a social and political construction um, and the power that it has even though it really is something that we've developed to in fact cre- uh, perpetuate inequality.
0: So you talked about origins and I guess your work is, is kind of historically focused as well as kind of focused in the present. I'm just interested that's a really kind of an interesting perspective for an education research to take given that so much of our research is very much in the present or even forward-looking. So I mean what is it you get from the historical angle?
1: Um, hopefully, trying to learn from some of the policies and strategies and leadership practices that we have employed, but that have not really um, helped us to move the needle in um, ensuring that we're providing um, high quality, authentic learning experiences for all students. And so while we, t- have a lot of rhetoric, rhetoric around educational equity and diversity and inclusion. Um, we really don't deal with the issues of power that mm. are inherent in um, race.
0: How open are um, well, first education academics and secondly education policymakers to hearing kind of messages from you about issues of power, but also the historical perspective? Because it's not really what they want to hear, is it?
1: No, I mean I think it's becoming, um, it's gaining a lot more interest. Let's say, particularly in the current political moment that we're in, um, and so I think that even While I was initiating my research in this area, there was, um, I had faculty discouraging me from kind of pursuing this. And, you know, why do you want to look back to the past? That was the past. We need to look forward and figure out ways to improve education in the future. Um, But I think when we do that, we fail to really ground our research and ground the questions that we're asking in education leadership and some of the real weighty issues around race that um, intersect with power. Um, And so I just really have tried to focus on centering race, centering the fact that it was created to um, ensure that students did not have ac- equal access to education um, and really disrupt this notion that education is the great equalizer.
0: So I mean in terms of theory then, I know you lose a lot of W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, which is a name you hear a lot from American scholars, less so in terms of Australia and Europe. So I mean what is it you get from Du Bois's work and why should we be paying attention?
1: Well a lot of his writings, um, one that's oftenly, or uh, off quoted is um, Does the Negro Need Separate Schools, which was written in 1934, published in 1935. And he really is... kind of anticipating what desegregation might do for black education and um, it's the question that we still grapple with today mm. in terms of whether or not we should be focused on integration and diverse educational spaces um, even though they may still be hostile to African American or black students or whether or not we should focus more on meeting the needs of black children wherever they may be.
0: So apart from Du Bois, who else are you kind of, who are your greatest of all time? What other kind of theories do you draw upon when you uh,
1: Derek Bell um, is a critical, the, the grandfather of a critical, Critical race theory um, and his work I think has really impacted me even though he comes from um, the legal field I think it really helps to again recognize that although we have a rhetoric and narrative around equality and justice for everyone in practice that's not the case
0: so these issues obviously are really really important in the US but they're actually important all around the world how is this how does your work travel where do you find it actually gets picked up outside of the US
1: Uh, well I'm glad to be here And, you know, and it's interesting because, um, you know, this is my first time here and talking with uh, colleagues here and really recognizing the impact that U.S. education policy has here. um, Even our failed policies is troubling. Um, And also the fact that it is ahistoric in terms of the policies that are taken here and not, again, recognizing um, the government role in ensuring that schools were segregated by race. Mm. So... I think that history really helps us to better understand, you know, the rise of Trump, um, the policies that we are seeing that are really um, seeking to dismantle public education in many ways, um, whether it's neoliberal policies, um, the expansion of charter schools and privatization, that we're really moving away from viewing schools as pillars of democracy Mm. um, and really focusing them or treating them as though they're a private good as opposed to a public good.
0: Yeah, yeah. yes. I mean, the fight for public education is an issue that's kind of worldwide. Um, I was also interested in terms of the, work, the role that you, you, you t- spend a lot of time looking at history, but you also spend a lot of time in terms of place and communities. I mean, what role does place play in your work?
1: You know, schools exist in local communities with um, families, um, parents, grandparents, um, local business owners, um, local community advocates. And so it's important to have, make sure that their voice is in the process as it relates to education policy making. So that's something that I try to highlight in my work. Um, obviously, in looking at school desegregation, place plays an important role in that. When you're looking at school attendance boundaries and who's attending what schools, so uh, I think that was more of a natural outgrowth of studying school desegregation and and better understanding the role the role of community voice and right. what community members want from their schools, which might look very different from what a school system um, would like to see from its schools.
0: Yeah, so I mean, the work you've done in like Nevada and Las Vegas, how does that translate over to Detroit and Denver? Is it kind of a complete impasse or
1: Las Vegas has a lot of lessons um, well, it's an interesting place because the Mountain West is really understudied um, in the U.S. Mm. And so we focus on a lot of the um, older urban core um, and schools in those areas, whether it's New York, Chicago, Detroit. Um, but Las Vegas is an interesting case because when you're talking about school desegregation, um, the African-American population is about 8 to 9 percent. And so the challenge of desegregating schools where you have communities that are predominantly black but only make up about 8% Mm -hmm. of the population requires oftentimes that those students bear the burden of desegregation. And so they're then uh, moved out of their neighborhoods and out of their communities in order to, quote-unquote integrate other parts of the district. And so I think that's a, um, an important perspective that um, needs to be examined more um, when we look at communities like Phoenix, Salt Lake City, um, and other places in the Mountain West that have a younger and increasingly diverse immigrant population. And that's really the future of America.
0: Yeah, I like this idea of focusing on one particular geographic area. So as you say, Chicago was always a very popular thing for sociologists to look mm-hmm. at, but to make yourself a kind of scholar of, of a particular region is a really neat idea. I want to ask you a politics question. You mentioned the T word. I wasn't going to mention it at all. Most of your work, I guess, took place underneath, uh, well, against the Obama administration. But now you're working in a very different context of the 45th president. So just, I'm, from an outside perspective, it looks terrible. But I mean, to what extent has Trump actually changed your work and changed the role of being an education researcher? And to what extent is it actually business as, as usual?
1: It's certainly not business as usual. Um, I recall meeting with a student the day after the election. She asked me how I saw my faculty role changing um, after the election, and it's something that I continue to reflect on and certainly has pushed my work to be more activist in nature, Mm. um, to really push my students, for one, to kind of think about their practice and how we can work in collective ways to really uh, reimagine education and to create a vision for education. Um,
0: What can we actually do? looking from the outside again Mm -hmm. it just looks like an an impossible situation.
1: I think people need to be more politically and civically engaged Mm. Um, and it takes understanding our history it takes um, working in collective ways where we're I think mobilizing each other and being politically active quite and voting. Um, It sounds simple but you know we have a lot of voter apathy in the country and you know we have to hold people accountable and ensure that we're putting people in positions of power that share our values um, and that want to uh, really will, for me, um, ensure that our public schools still serve as sites of possibility and opportunity for all children.
0: I mean, I guess the reason I said is it business as usual is more just that not everything has just suddenly come about as soon as Trump comes along, that there's a lot of issues, I guess, which have been bubbling under for a long time.
1: Yes. And so, again, that's where history can tell us a lot um, in terms of white nationalist movements that have always um, kind of responded to advances in civil rights. And so this happens regularly in American history and local communities. So there's actually some some really interesting work work around um, how white communities have resisted and pushed back on school desegregation efforts in various communities across the country. And so I think the more that education researchers are examining this history mm. and sharing it, we can better see um, that these social forces and these political forces have really been with us um, and pay more attention to, to what's happening instead yeah. of waiting for something this dramatic to happen.
0: Yeah. Well, oh, that's a touch wood. It doesn't happen here, but it's <laughs> also a lot going on, in Australia that you probably wouldn't mm-hmm. want to be. Indeed. I mean, just a couple more final prosaic work-based questions i mean one of the things that australian academics are always being encouraged to do is to engage with america to break the u.s and we're encouraged to go to aera as the kind of gold standard conference but i mean you're an american academic Mm so how, how essential is aera to you I mean, where else should we be looking towards
1: it's an interesting question i've been attending aera since 2005 i think as a as a doctoral student um and i don't I think I pretty much go every year. Um, There is a movement, I think, afoot of people who have been really critical of AERA um, in wanting AERA to take um, stronger positions on issues of equity and social justice um, and concern that sometimes it can be um, too constraining um, and not giving people the voice and education as a field, an opportunity to really... um, I think it expresses its concerns around issues like um, campus, you know, carrying guns on campus, um, or ensuring that we are um, supporting the the rights of all children. So, um, it's a big conference. I think the great thing about it is that you can find um, your own research community within it, which has always been very helpful Mm. to me.
0: But where else should we be looking to go then, if we're being a bit more? uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to start my own. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, what about in terms of publishing that? Because it's a, a big complaint we always have is, oh, American academics never read our work. And it's, well, you never actually published an American journal. So I mean, are there places where you think we should be looking to publish?
1: So Teachers College Record, of course, I will um, plug, plug that journal. Indeed, yeah, yeah. I mean, Urban Education is another one that I uh, read quite a bit. Mm. ER, which is an AERA journal, yeah, Educational yeah, Researcher. Yeah. The American Educational Studies Association does some critical work as well. Um that's a good question.
0: Yeah, just from the outside, it looks unfathomable. Again, maybe you should start your own kind of maybe critical TCR. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other final final thing is doing a little bit of research about you. I can see that you're very active on Twitter. Which is, I think is a good thing. But I mean, what does Twitter bring to your professional work? You seem to be making quite effective use of it. So I guess it's not wasting your time. But I mean, how's Twitter oh, really? changed the game? I
1: don't, well, it's, it's a real nice um, outlet for me. <laughs> it's a great way for me to actually get news, I think. Mm, um, yeah. So I use it that way. And then I just kind of respond or react to, to things that I'm reading. Um, I have attempted to use it in my courses and plan to be a little more strategic in that uh, in using it in the future in terms of hashtagging a course name and when uh, relevant articles or issues come up, um, ensuring that my students have access to that. So that's one of the things that I'm
0: I'm considering doing. Yeah, we, I've tried to do that and it's always fallen flat on its face, mm. whereas <laughs> it's a really good way of just hoovering up, yes. as you say, information, news, gossip, and just keeping in the loop. Yes. Excellent. Right. Well, thank ever so much for all that. That's been really, really interesting. It's been great to go, get to know a little bit of you and your work and I hope you get back to Australia very soon.
1: It is my pleasure. Thanks, Neil.